Mr. Show No Worries on Point and on the podcast today. A new book by a former liberal MP, Can You Hear Me Now? Is likely a book Justin Trudeau would rather you not hear. We'll talk to Selena Cesar Chavanes, the author of this book, and why she couldn't be part of his team anymore. Just how willing are we to give up our civil liberties in this country? Boy, this is shocking. We'll dive into some alarming polling numbers that say uh, Canadians apparently like authoritarian rule. So let's get talking. Getting through to you. That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Listening. My son is supposed to be coming in from the flight from Phoenix, and he is being detained because they didn't accept his test. He said they're saying it's not accurate, and they are wanting to take him to a quarantine facility. They won't let me talk to him. They won't let me see him. They won't come and talk to me. The Border Patrol services say that they have nothing to do with it. They won't tell me who has to do with it. They won't tell me who's picking him up. They won't tell me where he's going. They won't tell me anything. Sound like the country you live in? It is. And it's happening to people arriving home under Trudeau's new quarantine laws that haven't even yet been put in place. Hello there, Alex Pearson with you on this Monday, February the 1st. Here we are, putting the hardest of the hard months behind us. We get to welcome in a brand new month. I get to take a glass half full approach here because it brings us one step closer to spring. Albeit not much of a spring in our step as the vaccine deliveries just uh, continue to look shakier by the day. We'll talk about that in the show. We've got the UK variant hitting a meat plant. We've got the South Africa variant uh, here now. And, of course, uh, parents just sitting and wonder about when our kids are going back to school, which we're now told we will find out on Wednesday. Wednesday. So we'll uh, look forward to that. Also wanted to note the passing of, um, I was really sad about this, of Saul Corman, of Corey's Clothier. He was... uh, he was so well-known, certainly for anyone in this business. He uh, loved radio, loved supporting local radio. And he was just a, he was a mensch of a guy, just a really, really lovely, nice guy. You know, he was just, and he was also the last, I think, of a dying breed. You know, a true small business owner, just a, a retailer who, who did all the small touches, was very hands-on no matter how successful he got, you know, how busy he got. He always served his customers personally. So it was very, very sad that we got that news over the weekend, because he really was a true, true original. So we don't have many left of those guys. You got Tom from Tom's Place. He's one of those guys. But yeah, if it weren't for Tom uh, or for Sol Corman, we probably wouldn't have um, the Danforth as we know it today. So thoughts to his family on that loss. But I do want to, um, I want to look into this new season, a dawn of a new season, because it has to do with our civil liberties. And I've seen a few things of late that make me shake my head, but this is not something we should ignore because it's becoming, I think, too accepted in Canada. And the woman you heard off the top there, her name is Rebecca McDonald. She lives in Red Deer, Alberta. And I think, you know, what she posted to her Facebook is a a cautionary tale, if not completely outrageous. And so on Saturday, Rebecca uh, was picking up her 20-year-old son from Calgary Airport. And this was uh, Ethan. He'd been in the U.S. for the last couple of years and was coming back to go back to school. And because of the new rules that we learned on Friday, 
the family thought, okay, he's coming back to school, but let's get him back sooner before these new rules kick in. And so, you know, she thought they were coming in a couple of weeks. They thought, get him a, a test, get him on a plane, get him home. Because that's what most parents would probably tell their school-age kids. And as soon as um, he got off the plane in Calgary, all of a sudden he was whisked away in what she described as something you see in a tyrannical country. And she has not heard from him since. They say he doesn't have a choice. They say that it's the law. They say that I don't have the right to talk to him, to see him. And they are taking him against my will and his will. And I'm not okay with it. No. <laughs> no one should be okay with it. I mean, this is the kind of thing that you, you see in movies uh, in Russia or in China. Not, not a def democratic party, uh, country with charter rights. That's not the kind of stuff we're supposed to accept here. And yet here we are with this happening under the party that calls itself the party of the charter. And then you wonder, well, what did this guy do? What, did, what law did Ethan break? Well, he didn't break any laws. His mother um, helped him out. She did everything by the books. So she, she called up an Arizona pharmacy. She booked him a test all before he boarded the plane. She told the pharmacy what the situation was, what the test she needed was to get on board the plane into Canada. And apparently... The yeah, pharmacist said, yeah, here's the shot. And it wasn't. But, you know, instead of getting some kind of clarity or explanation or maybe a bit of leniency when uh, he got off the plane, he gets dragged away to these unknown government facilities as if he's some kind of, of criminal. You know, he's presumed guilty of something but got zero due process. And his mom and dad got no information, no location, no idea where he's been taken, no time frame of when they can talk to him, no basic rights, nothing about when he'll be released, absolutely zilch. I mean, is this what we're going to expect to see happening under these new Trudeau laws? Because it's already happening, and the rules are not even yet in place yet. They haven't even been explained or enacted. And we were told on Friday that details about this were still coming in, and yet here we see Calgary. And you look at Calgary, of all places, moving ahead with these kind of draconian police state measures. And so what can you expect should this happen to you? Well, according to Rebecca, don't expect any help from Border Control because they wouldn't help her. Airport security, they wouldn't help her. And so here is this mom who 72 hours later says she still has no idea where her son has been taken. I'm just angry now. <laughs> now I'm just angry. And there is zero accountability. There's no questions asked. There is nobody that you can hold accountable for this. And... I just want people to ask themselves what kind of Canada they want to live in. People fight long and hard for freedom, and this just feels really wrong. It is really wrong. Darn right it's really wrong. It is so wrong on every, every level. And Canadians should be outraged. Because this isn't the kind of country we want, COVID or not. I mean, just because the government screwed up with their response, you know, totally dropping the ball, you know, they're now making up laws to save their rear ends. But that does not, and it should not mean that they can take away basic civil rights. 
And these are very basic charter rights being absolutely shredded under the guise of, you know, health uh, protections. And apparently it's not an isolated case. I was surprised to read about Edmonton Pastor Chris Matthews, who says the same thing happened to his wife when he went to pick her up at Calgary Airport last Thursday. And again, she too gets a test done in Dallas. It isn't apparently the right test. She got off the plane and then gets whisked away to an unknown isolation center. No questions asked, no information given to her husband, who's just completely left in the dark. And so... You don't think it'll happen to you, but we've got two people here who tried to do everything by the book, get ahead of the game, and apparently they got the wrong test in the U.S., but here's what I wonder. So they get the wrong test in the U.S., but somehow between the time they board the plane to Canada and during the trip, they broke some rule that they'd only learned about when they were treated and punished like a criminal right on arrival. So if it was the wrong test, how did they get on the plane in the United States? Didn't someone say, well, that's not the right test? I mean, did no one at the airline say you're not going to be able to get in the country? I guess what they should have known is that they shouldn't have gotten the antigen test. They were required to get the molecular COVID-19 test. Okay. You know, at least be clear about it. These are the kinds of things that people have to know when they're in a foreign country. It's not enough that the government can just drop these draconian laws on people and then allow the provincial authorities to kind of figure them out. Or, I don't know, the airport authorities or the bylaw authorities or whoever is walking around with a badge and, and, a, and a uniform. And as of Friday, over the weekend, my understanding is that these new quarantine laws are still being looked into by the Trudeau government to see if they can even do this stuff. And yet already, Alberta, of all places is getting a head start on turning uh, the Wild West into China. So, you know, you see these stories and you think, okay, it couldn't happen here. Well, apparently it could happen here. And this woman, Rebecca, is just a very normal woman who's just completely baffled as to why her son was taken away by law enforcement. and, And she was given zero information. That that that's not even how you get treated when you're under arrest for an actual crime you at least get your rights read to you or some information or access to a lawyer. This goes way beyond that. So we will talk about it. And I think we should ask, you know, what kind of country we want to live in, because apparently the kind of country we want to live in is um, built on slippery slopes, slippery slopes and our civil liberties. And uh, in this pandemic, no question, we've given a lot and a lot of it had done willingly. And it's under the guise, of course, of a health emergency. And then, of course, we get the assurance from those in charge that, you know, it's just uh, it's just short term. It's a lockdown, just restrictions. And then, you know, it'll go back to normal. And yet history will show us that every time we give up a right, that doesn't often come back. It's never a sure thing. And then it becomes and sets precedent. And then I see this polling, pretty shocking polling at that, that evidently shows that Canadians are actually quite eager to turn this country into an authoritarian, there you go, say the word, authoritarian state. Anthony Fury is a columnist with the Toronto Sun, and you were the one who um, uh, gave me the heads up on this. And it's, it's shocking. This is a pretty disturbing trend. 
Alex, it's not a slippery slope. We are we are on the slope and we are sliding down it at breakneck pace. I mean, we are beyond that. Uh, this is a really alarming new national poll conducted by Campaign Research. Uh, they did an online poll of a, of a couple thousand Canadians and asked them questions around uh, things that you would be willing to uh, allow the government to do in the name of battling COVID-19, like the police entering mm. homes without a warrant, uh, whether or not you should jail or fine people for uh, downplaying the seriousness of coronavirus, whether or not it's okay for the police to break up family members. And I got to tell you, Alex, I, I, I wasn't optimistic uh, that this country would uh, rally around civil liberties right now, but I didn't think the results would be as bad as they are. No, and it, it breaks down into voter base, but only only 29% of liberal voters strongly oppose cops entering your house with a warrant, which just is like, are you kidding me? That That's ter- that's scary. And then you look on the uh, NDP and conservative side, and, and they are the numbers are, are way, way different. Uh, you know, they feel differently about that. But also in um, jailing or fining people for spreading, quote, disinformation about the, the virus, 71% of liberal voters support the law clamping on down on those who question the existence of the seriousness of that. I mean, <laughs> what? It's totally bizarre, and, and it's more alarming. I mean, yes, liberal voters are, are a lot more likely to support uh, these uh, uh, these abuses of our civil liberties, but for most of these categories, a slim majority of Canadians across the board, uh, age group, gender, mm-hmm. uh, area of the country, political affiliation, all sort of a slim majority actually support uh, all of these things. So it's, it's it's very problematic. I mean, jailing someone for making a claim such as COVID's just the flu, and that's the one example they give in this question when they pull people saying COVID's just the flu. Uh, well, first of all, I've had a pediatric expert tell me in, in children it is actually not as serious as the flu. Uh, but, you know, immaterial of that, even if they hadn't said that, I mean, if a person wants to go in Young, young and Dundas Square and say, it's just the flu, it's just the flu, like, okay, who, who cares? If the person is totally wrong, uh, I don't understand why we even need to throw them in prison, and yet 75% of liberal voters would like to do that. So it is it is odd. Well, well, no, that's downright scary. That's that's a freedom of speech yeah. issue. I mean, I don't like anti-vaxxers, but if they want to spew their stuff, I just will turn the channel sure. on it. I mean, I'm not about to say, let's throw them in jail. Uh, you know, I don't have a lot of time for them, but you're criminalizing someone's opinion, whether you agree with it or not. Um, but, you know, when, getting back to your point that while liberal voters feel more strongly about it, the, the more disturbing of the trends that campaign research found out is that a lot of Canadians kind of shrug their shoulders at this. And we saw what happened in G20 when basic civil liberties were, were completely trampled upon. People cared then. I'm just shocked why they don't care now. Um, and, and did we get a breakdown of the, democra- the demographic of who is okay with this? Um, well, in terms of around the country, uh, the people who are more okay with it is Atlantic provinces are much more supportive of it and people in Quebec. And then in Ontario, not so much. Manitoba is kind of 50-50. And then um, the Alberta and Saskatchewan, they are against this. And BC is a little bit more in support of it. So generally kind of the more like, and those are the areas where there is liberal support. Quebec's uh, not necessarily uh, totally true on all of that, but places where there's liberal writings are more in support of these civil rights abuses. I'm not trying to make it a, a partisan issue, but that's just what the numbers show. So it's uh, it's very odd on that front. But there's an ironic question here when they actually ask directly. In these other questions, they say, do you support this, that, or the other? Then in one question, they say, do you support suspending, suspending civil liberties? 52% of respondents say no, and only 38% say yes, they do. And I'm like, 
guys, do you not realize the questions you just answered? So they, they don't even right. realize that they are actually saying, oh, I'm all in favor of civil liberties, but uh, yeah, you can also jail someone for, for saying COVID's the flu. It's uh, quite right. a disconnect. Well, it's also like people who say, well, I'm okay with soft censorship. And I'm like, there's no such thing. You either have censorship or you do not. Um, you either have civil liberties or you do not. Um, and so I, I get the sense in some of the polling that we've seen of late about things like freedom of speech or, or civil liberties that people don't really understand what they're agreeing to, which is part of the problem. I think people have to either experience it like the mother I just talked about, you know, where her son's been taken off to some government camp uh, until you're in that and you realize, oh, my God, I have no one standing up for me in what it appears as authoritarian. Then you don't really know what you're you're talking about. No, you never really appreciate why overreaching government is a bad thing until it, it overreaches <clears throat> on you. I mean, the other thing that surprises me, Alex, is these opinions are being held now uh, in late January, well, beginning of February 2021, well into the second wave, where we've had 10 months to learn about yeah. this virus, learn and grow mm-hmm. and evolve our response. And also, we have a massive downward trend in cases. Uh, it's happening all around North America. There are jurisdictions that are not under lockdown that are also seeing this downward decline. And we have the vaccine being rolled out, albeit you know poorly and slowly, and you've done a great job covering all of that. But I, I don't understand why uh, these polls show people are just freaking out so much when, when actually the situation is also improving and there's a lot of positives to acknowledge right now careful anthony you could get yourself in trouble with those views <laughs> very true nonetheless thank you appreciate your uh, your time on this thanks that's anthony fury who writes about this in the toronto sun but again before you answer questions make sure you know what you're talking about well, if Prime Minister Trudeau was not listening before his former MP left, um, maybe he should now. Because Selena Cesar Chavez entered politics in 2015. That's when she was elected as a Liberal MP for Whitby. It wasn't her first run at the job, but certainly um, she would win this seat after Jim Flaherty would pass away. And she was elected a Liberal MP, where she would serve as a parliamentary secretary to the Prime Minister himself, someone at that time she admired, someone she was excited about, and who really believed that he was a change maker. And then, of course, she finds herself pushed out and eventually sent to the back benches in 2018. And around the same time as Jody Wilson-Raybould resigned over the SNC scandal, she had gone to the Prime Minister herself to offer her resignation, only to find herself in an angry confrontation with Mr. Trudeau, who seemed to be more worried about the optics of her leaving than the reason she no longer wanted to be a part of his party or his vision. Now, Ms. Chavez has a new book, Can You Hear Me Now? How I Found My Voice and Learned to Live with Passion and Purchase. She joins me now. Great to have you. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Alex. It's a pleasure. Congratulations. Uh, You are now an author. um, And this book has been kind of, uh, there's a lot of, uh, I think, excitement around this book. I have not yet read it. I will be ordering it because I'm looking forward to it because you actually have an interesting and unique perspective, not just of your foray into politics, but of Justin Trudeau. So let's just start a little bit with the politics because you ran for Mr. Trudeau in the Whitby riding after uh, Flaherty's passing. You weren't exactly new to politics, but, you know, you were excited by what Mr. Trudeau stood for. Is that correct? For sure. I, I was sold a, a, a bag of goods that included being bold, politics done differently, uh, open and transparent government, a feminist government, one that uh, 
was purporting to understand diversity as our strength. And I, I took that to the doors of the people of Whitby. Most people, when they get into politics, it's because they do really feel that this is how they make change. At what point for you was it that you realized you were part of a machine and your your voice didn't necessarily want to be heard? So I, I would say that there were a number of instances right from the beginning that I knew that there was something amiss. Uh, one of the first meetings I had with the prime minister was to Uh, to really set the record straight that I didn't want to be tokenized in this government. I wanted to make sure that I was not used for to fill any gender or racial gaps that he Mm -hmm. had in his administration. That was a conversation we had in December of 2015. And throughout that next year, the only international events that I was sent on was events related to the black community. So from, from that first year, I just, I started thinking like this, this doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, I'm clearly very smart, have a lot of business acumen, and I wasn't being leveraged for those other attributes that I thought I should have. And as a, a black woman, you have said that, you know, you believe that Ottawa isn't designed for people like like you. What What does that mean? It's not even a belief. It actually is the structure of the system. I think Canadians know that our democracy was made or established on a principle of exclusion. Women didn't get the right to vote right away. Indigenous people, people of color. So there was mm-hmm. an exclusionary principle in the creation of the of our of our democratic institution, which was only reinforced through a number of different policies, the Indian Act, immigration policy that's racist. You know, it's reinforced. And so when you get to present day structures, you kind of have to really try to fit yourself into that. There's no dress code for women in, in the House of Commons because we weren't designed to be there in the first place. Right. And certainly if you wear the wrong thing, you'll be pointed out for it anyway. Um, so it's a, a <laughs> yeah. no win for, for a lot of women. Too. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. there you go. But you did get appointed to be the prime minister's parliamentary uh, assistant. Um, that had to have been exciting for you. Uh, for sure. Getting that call as the parliamentary secretary to a prime minister as a first-time member of parliament is exciting. But I'm not excited by titles very much. Right. Um, clearly, in that conversation, I said, I, I'm, you know, I, I don't want to be a token. I, I'm perfectly happy being the member of parliament for Whitby. I wanted to get down and get to work. And that work required us to look after those that needed us most in our communities and and. And as much as that was exciting, I didn't let the title get to my head. I wanted to get to the work done. What surprised you or disappointed you the most? I mean, what would you tell, let's say, a younger Selena or someone who is saying, you know what, I'm going to be that change maker? I would say to, you know, anyone who's looking to enter into politics, and I said this in my letter when I was leaving, that, you know, we we should run, but we should run in packs. I mean, one of the things that I said at the end of my book that I was disappointed a little in myself, I know that I have some responsibility to bear in, you know, leaving politics. And I wish I had connected a little bit more, uh, maybe not even to, to members of my own party, uh, but to also the opposition members, I, I mentioned Michelle Rempel, um, you know, we, we had a, a very interesting relationship. We would we would hide the fact that we would talk to each other, that we'd, you know, have a drink together. And I wish I didn't do that. I would say be open, be honest, be your authentic self and don't let the rules, the, the unwritten rules of politics and how you're supposed to play the game 
impede you from doing what you think that you should in your heart of hearts should do. I think that's interesting because old days of politics, um, people reached across the aisle all the time. Sure, they went tough on question period and they were always uh, loyal to the party, but they could they could put that aside at the end of the day, go out and have a dinner or a drink and agree to disagree, but they had a friendship, whether you're a liberal, NDP, and a conservative. That has gone away, so it saddens me when I hear someone like yourself um, you know, say it still goes on. Well, you know, I think it still happens to some extent, but when you, I, I think I, I take responsibility for that. I wish I had leveraged those relationships a little bit more mm-hmm. while I was there. I, I think that that was, if, if I were to do it again, I would make sure that I, I'm more intentional about having those relationships. It would probably make politics a whole lot healthier, you know, an exchange sure. of ideas and, and, and certainly not um, painting your adversary as an enemy. For sure. For sure. That, that's something I, I 100 percent agree with. Now, you resigned at the height of the SNC scandal. It was right uh, when Jody Wilson-Raybould um, essentially stepped down. And a lot of people assumed that is why you did that. And it was not why you, you stepped aside. No. So I resigned earlier in, in 2018, at the end of 2018, as parliamentary secretary to the prime minister, then made the decision that I was not going to seek re-election. And, you know, both of those times in both of those conversations with the prime minister about leaving the post and not running again, I w- he never once said, Selena, I'm disappointed. I would love for you to stay. You know? <laughs> so, so, you know, and I, I found that really telling. And it wasn't until after I wrote the book that I thought, holy moly, like, you know, Usually, if you, if you have a, a boss that, you know, is interested in, and is excited about the work that you're doing, they would at least have the, give you the courtesy of saying, you know, I, I really want you to say, that never happened. And for me, it was, it was actually telling, because when I left the role as Parliamentary Secretary for International Development, I left because I really did not have the support of the party, the support of the PMO, or the Prime Minister himself. Um, at, at critical times, especially when, you know, I was talking about equity, when I was talking about racism in the mm-hmm. system, um, they didn't support me. And I, I thought that that was, that was really telling when I knew, especially that they were helping other people, they were lending a handout, they were supporting, and it didn't happen for me. And I just, it was disappointing to say the least. Would you have stayed? I don't know if I, I would have. But it would have been nice to, to know that the work that I did, whether at international development or as an MP or raising the profile on issues of mental health or equity or any of the other work that I did while I was there, was at least appreciated. And I never, I never got that sense. We are chatting with Selena Cesar Shavana. She's got a new book out. The book is called Can You Hear Me Now? How I Found My Voice and Learned to Live with Passion and purchase. And I just want to read a little bit. Um, I got one of the excerpts of your book, and I thought this was interesting. You say, some prime ministers are brilliant caucus leaders building consensus on the issues where they want to make change. Others lead by fear. Our leaders always said that he wanted to engage with all caucus members, but even in the last year of his first term, there were some that had never met with him. In my opinion, he was hiding behind the impenetrable shield of his principal secretaries, each of them smart people, but none of them responsible to a constituency themselves. To some degree, he was engaging more with international media than he was with his own caucus on critical issues. That is just a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit of what 
um, is in this book. I mean, that's not governing differently. (laughs) And that's exactly right, Alex. And, you know, I remember when when I first got into politics, people were talking about Harper and how Harper was, you know, very centralized. Everything was controlled by the PMO. And I really don't think anything changed in that four years that I was there. I, I didn't see anything different. I didn't see that engagement with MPs. And I mean, you know, I, I, could, I could see some of your listeners saying, oh, well, Selena sounds jaded. Well, look at the problem that we had with the small business tax credit. You have 180 individuals in, in your caucus, many of them business individuals, and you have a small mm-hmm. business tax credit that goes out and is a total fiasco because there wasn't that engagement. There is evidence of this happening and it, it didn't change. And there was scandal after scandal. There was, you know, flop after flop. It just seems like they just kept stepping in their own stuff because they weren't having that engagement that was required to build good policy, period. And when I mean, from what I know of you on Twitter or what I've heard, I mean, you're a strong woman. You have something to say, but I I assume that's why you went into politics. And so the prime minister and your teammates should have known that you were coming into politics to make a difference and, and, and have a say and a voice. What was the reaction from the prime minister when you actually went to him with your voice? Because there were some pretty heated moments. And I think most people look at the prime minister and say, but he's so nice. He's such a positive person. But is that all just smoke and mirrors? Well, as far as I'm concerned, yes. So I'll give you two examples, Alex, really quickly. The first is related to, you know, investments in the black community. Just just it's Black History Month. Let's just focus in on mm-hmm. there just for a minute. Making uh, investments into the black community, recognizing the international de- decade of people of African descent. I went to the prime minister in 2016 and talked to him about wanting to, you know, explore some of these issues. And I did not hear anything back. I was excluded from every single conversation. Now, you have to remember, this is a feminist government who believes Mm -hmm. that diversity is our strength. I am the only black female member of parliament out of 338 people. I'm excluded from this conversation for a year. In 2018, when those announcements around the international decade and the funding in budget 2018 were announced, I was surprised. Because I was excluded purposely from every single one of those meetings that happened during 2017, community members would say, where is Selena? And they were being told, do not invite her. So that's number one. Number two was when I actually said that I was leaving as a member of parliament and being met by this hostility of, you know, I can't have you and Jody leaving at the same time. It's, it, it looks bad on me. And You know, when you really think about whether this is smoke and mirrors or not, I I would leave it to Canadians to decide. When it came to me, it was absolute smoke and mirrors. There was no genuine attempt to actually do follow through with the promises that he made. So when you saw him, let's say, take a knee um, at the height of the summer when Black Lives Matter and those issues were dominating, I guess I know your reaction. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I, <laughs> I don't even know what to say at that because, you know, I think if you're, if you're going to take a knee, you're going to look into a camera, you're going to make sure that, you know, you're, you're, you're getting that video. Mm-hmm. You should be able to do something when you stand up. Otherwise, don't bother. But it, it, the, the performative gestures that 
he has around equity in particular are getting exhausting. You know, right now there is a class action lawsuit by federal service former employees against the government of Canada related to some of the issues that they face of harassment within that system. The last Mm -hmm. act that I put forward was Bill 468, which died on the floor, but that the government has talked about for the last six years about increasing the number of individuals, black individuals in particular, among the federal service. Nobody's doing anything. It, it is a lot of talk, a lot of words, and no action. All talk, no walk. What was the most disappointing exactly. thing for you? I think for me, it's, the most disappointing thing is having to leave a job that I really loved, especially mm-hmm. around international development. When we think about the number of organizations we have around the world, Canadian organizations that are working in extreme conditions, and then when disaster strikes, they double down and do twice as much. Leaving a job where you're working with individuals like that is empowering, is inspiring. It's something that I wanted to do, but I could not reconcile the fact that I was in a, in a really performative government mm-hmm. in that space and then still just stay because it was something that I could do. Um, I, I, just, I couldn't reconcile those two things, especially when my principles and values came into, into you know, questioning whether I should give them up. Jody Wilson, Jane Philpott, um, you know, both stood uh, up on principle uh, and walked away. I mean, they pushed back and, and they saw the price that you pay when you push back. You pushed back. You paid a price. Are you surprised that this government that you were once part of has survived? I mean, SNC is one of... Ugh, 20 scandals um, that any other government I don't think would survive. Are you surprised that this government keeps getting a pass? I am so surprised. I'm surprised after SNC, uh, which Joey Wilson-Raybould was exonerated. I'm surprised after blackface. I'm surprised after the week. I'm surprised after so many different scandals. And, you know, you have to question, so why is it that they keep surviving? And it might be the strength of the other political parties. It might be that Canadians probably don't know what else to do at this point, um, especially when you have such, you know, you have what's happening in the United States was still mm-hmm. at its height at that point. So you're trying to sort of pacify that by having something that you could sort of the, the devil you know versus the devil you don't know in Canada, right? So I don't know why, but I'm I'm surprised that they have survived, to be quite honest. So what's next for you? You seem to have a lot still to say, and um, obviously you're quite passionate about the things you believe in. Are you done with politics? You know, I don't think so. I, You know, I, I do want to go back. I think that it's important to have individuals in politics who are able to push back against the status quo. Now that I know what I know, I will do things a little bit differently, you know, and and uh, holding our government to account. And I think this is what I want your listeners to know, that holding your government to account, making sure that you question them and you push them to be better, you know, it's not an indictment of that of that whole system of the whole system of our democracy. It actually is democracy at work. It is the power of the people to make sure that the political will is exercised of the people, not of the politicians. And so, you know, will I go back? Absolutely, because I think that there's a lot more to say and there's a lot more to do. But that doesn't mean that I'm not going to push right now on Twitter or emails or text messages to my former colleagues. I'm still going to I'm still going to rattle the cage.
as you should. I so appreciate your time. I know you're extremely busy, maybe not with a traditional book uh, tour, but I know that you're extremely busy right now um, letting everyone know that you do have a book and that uh, you should be heard. And I thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Alex. And thank you to your listeners as well. I appreciate it. That is Selena Cesar Chavanez. We have not heard the last from her. The book is Can You Hear Me Now? How I Found My no- Voice and Learn to Live with Passion and Purchase. You can pre-order that now and it will be for sale widely. And I'm sure as we enter a spring election, possibly, this is not a book that the Prime Minister would like you to read. But you know what? Get all the opinions you can get. It makes you a better person. You can join us, of course, Monday through Friday, starting 630 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point and this is Global News Radio.